From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Groundbreaking paranormal researcher Joshua P. Warren is here for the entire two hours. I think I've pulled him out of the uh, out of an experiment in the desert uh, out in Nevada where he's working on some kind of paranormal experiment. He's always in the field or in his lab working on something. Uh, so to have Joshua here for two hours, well, let's just say you are in the right place at the right time. We're all very lucky. Joshua has a new podcast, relatively new. I believe he launched in the fall of 2020. It's called Strange Things, and we'll find out about that. We'll talk about secret ways to manifest the laws of attraction. In fact, he wrote a book about that called Use the Force, a Jedi's Guide to the Law of Attraction. We'll talk about shape-shifting immortals. How's that? Psychokinesis, how to move things with your mind, just like a Jedi, uh, and much more. Now, Joshua uh, is uh, from Asheville, North Carolina in the uh, the beautiful Blue Mountains, and uh, but he's in Nevada tonight. Joshua has spent 25 years as a professional paranormal investigator, winner of the University of North Carolina Thomas Wolfe Award for Fiction. He's the author of over 20 books, including How to Hunt Ghosts, The Secret Wisdom of Kukul Khan, and Use the Force, A Jedi's Guide to the Law of Attraction. I just mentioned that one. A correspondent for Coast to Coast AM, He's appeared on the Travel Channel, History Channel, Discovery Channel, National Geographic, Sci-Fi, and was uh, an on-screen credited consultant for Warner Brothers. He owns the Asheville Mystery Museum in Asheville, North Carolina, and the Bermuda Triangle Research Center in Puerto Rico. As I say, he's in Nevada tonight. Joshua, welcome back. How are you, my friend? It's so good to be with you. Thank you. I am doing great. And, uh, you know, I mentioned to you just before we went on the air, I've spread myself so thin, I don't even participate in that many interviews anymore. But when I hear from you, I love it. I drop everything because uh, you just have such a great show. You bring such a wonderful insight to all these subjects. And so it's, uh, it's always a thrill to have some time with you on the air. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Wonderful. We're the Mutual Appreciation Society. And I have to say... Uh, the mighty Aphrodite, my lovely bride, is a huge fan, and I mean, I always want to get you on the uh, on the program. But she, this was a command performance. She said, "Please get <laughs> Joshua back on." She carries that sigil around in her wallet whenever she goes to the convenience store to buy a lottery ticket. She pulls it out. Uh, so I want to talk about sigils a little bit later. But first, let me ask you: What did I interrupt in the desert? What were you doing out in the desert tonight? <laughs> well, you know, I've spent the past four years here in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I created the Creepy Vegas Ghost and UFO Show. It's the only show of its kind in the world. It's a nonfiction presentation that we do at this magnificent bar here in Vegas called Millennium Fandom, which is the number one pop culture and cosplay bar in the world, as far as I understand. And what we do is for one hour, we show you the very best evidence of ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, time warps, uh, things related to Area 51, 
All these things from this spot we know as the Nevada Triangle, which we can get into a little more if you'd like as well. And you not only get to see this evidence, but we have all kinds of items there that you can actually touch. We have haunted items. We have UFO debris. uh, We have quite a few surprises. And so um, people come from all over the world to experience this show. And we had to close it down of course, for most of 2020 because of COVID. So we are just now restarting that show this month on June 19th, and we'll run it at least once a week. And so, so much has happened (laughs) over the past year that I'm now sort of updating the show and getting even more like fresh data. And so right now, whenever there is a new UFO sighting or something else bizarre, I'm rushing out into the desert, and I'm collecting this brand new evidence to bring back and put in the show. And so what I was doing in particular today has to do with the time warp that I discovered. You may recall back in 2018, I was on my way from here in Vegas to Area 51, which is about a two-hour drive. I was heading toward the town of Rachel. And to make a very long story short, I had this device called a differential time rate meter, which is supposed to always measure a constant, consistent flow of time. But at this one sort of nondescript spot on the side of the road, I found that time actually slowed down by a fraction of a second, which is a big, big deal. That's not supposed to happen. Right. And then it turns out later on, that site, much to my surprise, is one of the biggest UFO hotspots in the world where people have not only seen and videotaped a lot of these UFOs, but there have even been close encounters. And so um, just recently, I did a conference here in Vegas. I presented it, and uh, a guy named Jason came here from Colorado, and he went out to that time warp location with some third-generation night vision goggles. And when there was nobody else around, and he's just there in the middle of the night, this glowing form appeared right next to this time warp location, and it looks almost ghostly, and it's floating around. And so I've been back out there trying to get even more data, and basically what I could tell you is that when you're out there, it's really spooky because if you've never been to Vegas before, if somebody's listening and you've never been to Vegas, Vegas is an island in the middle of the desert, So when you're here, you feel like you're in the center of the world with all the lights and the buildings and the glitz and the glamour. But then you drive just, you know, 10, 15 minutes outside of that, and your cell phone signal is gone. And sometimes you don't see a gas station for 75, even 100 miles, depending on what direction you're going. And you're really out there on your own. You feel very isolated. So I was out there taking some measurements, and I did find a few interesting things today, but nothing mind-blowing, so I'm going to keep going back because I'm determined to gather as much fresh stuff as possible before we we, uh, we revamp the show. And if you're going to be in the Vegas area, just go to creepyvegas.com and come join us on June 19th. Fantastic. Well, when they let us out of a lockdown up here, I'm going to get down there and join you one of these days. i got to ask you about the new podcast. It started in the fall. This is... Uh, Coast to Coast AM's Paranormal Podcast Network, Strange Things. So tell people a little bit what it's about and how they can listen. Yeah, thank you. It's such an honor to to be I really one of the very first uh, podcasts on the new iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. You know, I started appearing on radio shows about 30 years ago, and then about 20 years ago, I started appearing on Coast to Coast AM. 
when Art Bell was still the primary host. And what an honor that was. And then shortly after that, I was hired by Clear Channel in Asheville, North Carolina, to be a professional radio host on uh, News Radio 570 WWNC, which it's the largest AM station in that area. And so uh, I started off doing your typical like drive time political talk, which I do not miss that at all. <laughs> and then uh, I created a show called Strange, excuse me, it was called Speaking of Strange. This word strange just stuck with me for a while. So I created Speaking of Strange which was live every Saturday for about 15 years and uh, did very, very well. It was the number one show in its time slot in the market that reached parts of several states. And I would have continued doing it. I could still be doing it today. But when I decided to make this life-altering move to Puerto Rico in 2013 so that I could study the Bermuda Triangle, I gave up that show just so I could go travel and do this research. And so then I started my own little independent podcast that I do once in a while called Joshua P. Warren Daily. So I've, I've, I've been very comfortable in this sort of host role or this role of guiding a podcast, but it was a big surprise to me when last year I received a call from Tom Danheiser there at Premier Radio Network saying, hey, listen, we're going to create this new paranormal podcast network, and we would like for you to have a show. And uh, he came up with the name Strange Things, and I said, well, <clears throat> what do you want me to talk about? And he said, you can talk about whatever you want. And for me, that was what sealed the deal because, as you know, Richard, it's very easy to get sort of pigeonholed into one category, like this is the ghost guy or this is the UFO guy or this is the Bigfoot guy or this is the psychic guy, and I've never – I've never seen this field that way. I, I believe that all these things are connected yeah. at a certain level, and I, I, I like to, to study it all and talk about it all and mix it all up, and that's what I'm able to do with this podcast, Strange Things. It's free. comes out every week. It's one hour, and if you just go to strangethingsshow.com, you'll see the links to the different platforms where you can listen to it. And so, uh, yeah, it's wonderful to, uh, to be in, in the company of, of you and so many other wonderful hosts there working for Premier Radio Networks. Fantastic. All right, strangethingsshow.com. Yes, and, huh? that, and then you can you can subscribe and and get it delivered right to your mobile phone or your desktop every week. So you mentioned Asheville. You have deep deep roots in North Carolina. You have, I believe, on both sides of your family, you go back like hundreds of years. Yes, you must have grown up with so many legends, so much folklore. I'm guessing, you know, because obviously, where did your interest in this come from? It must have come. In, from in part from your relatives, distant relatives, and the stories. They must have so many ghost stories. And what was it like with that kind of lineage and legacy growing up? You know, for me, ghost stories and, and legends and Native American tales, all that stuff was so common that I almost just assumed everybody grew up that way. Uh, because my, as you said, my family on both sides had been in that area since the 1700s. And of course, as listeners may or may not realize, the first time the English tried to settle the New World, so to speak, they went to North Carolina and they set up this colony 
and everybody vanished. And the lost day, colony, yeah. Yeah, nobody knows what happened. So that's the first sort of establishing mystery from my neck of the woods, so to speak. And then eventually there were some English people who went to Virginia, and one of my great-great-great-great-grandfathers, he got a land grant, which, which sent him down to western North Carolina. So on both sides of my family, though, I had big families. My mother was one of 10 children. My father was one of seven children. And on both sides of the family... We had musicians, uh, but especially on my mother's side of the family. So these are guys who, who would sit around, and they could play anything, okay? I don't, I don't care what. You give them a guitar, a banjo, a mandolin, a dulcimer, and they could sit around and not just tell stories, but sing the old songs, you know, the old Scotch-Irish songs and things like that about places like Brown Mountain where you have the Brown Mountain Lights and, um, and the Ballad of Frankie Silver, this woman who was hanged and haunts the mountains and all. So yeah, it, was a, it was the richest possible environment for me to appreciate how that hearing these old ghost stories at very least was a great way of keeping history alive. Uh, there are a lot of things that we would not even remember at all about our past if it weren't for some uh, sensational ghost story that, that still makes it seem relevant. And so if you combine that with the genuine paranormal experiences that my family had, and I'm, I'm sure I told you I had an uncle back in the 1930s, a great uncle, whose picture was taken. And when the picture came out, he didn't have a head. Whoa. And then a month <laughs> later, he was sitting on the porch of their old farmhouse reading a magazine, and they went out to bring him his lunch. The magazine was there, but he was gone. His name was Claude Calloway, and he was never, ever seen or heard from again. Okay, wow. this happened. No, I've never like, heard that story, Joshua. Really? That's yeah. Right. Blink of an eye. Okay, this, and that was a big tragedy. In my family, because you know they never had closure, you know, and uh, and it would it would have been a, a disturbing enough situation on its own. But then you combine it with this sort of phantasmal photograph that was taken a month before, it becomes even more eerie. And then you have all of these sort of psychic experiences that people have had. I recently interviewed my mother Peggy on strange things and it's the first time i've ever interviewed my mother that i can recall and she was great because i wanted her to come on and talk about some of the experiences that she has had throughout her life with what she calls her esp and my mom is not one of these people who uh you know runs around sensing things and and, and has this sort of like you know nebulous idea about science and and emotion and all i mean she's a she's a very rational she's a business person she's an entrepreneur but she's always had this incredible ability to sense things that were going to happen in the future. For example, it saved my life. When I was just practically a baby, she said that I had crawled out of my car seat and gotten in the back of kind of this little station wagon that my dad and my mom were in. And all of a sudden, my mom had this terrible premonition, and she turned around. And she says, my God, if we got rear-ended, that would kill him. And so she crawled into the back, and she put me back into my car seat. And she said, not even 30 seconds later, boom. Uh, truck hits the back of their car, crushes that whole area in, and my, she is oh certain that I would have died if it hadn't been for that. And so there are many, many stories like that my mom can tell. So in a nutshell, because of me growing up hearing all of these amazing stories 
about the past and the traditions of that area, and a lot of them influenced by the old European tales, and then having weird things happen to my family, and then witnessing firsthand a lot of these you know, sort of psychic things, it opened my mind a lot to the reality of the paranormal, and that's what first inspired me to go out and start writing about these places and publishing articles in the local newspaper. But it still, even then, took me years before I started having some of my own paranormal encounters, which were life-altering. And what that shows you is that paranormal is called paranormal because it doesn't happen as often as a lot of people would lead you to believe. When it does happen, it's a big deal, though. Oh, yes, yes. You mentioned the Brown Mountain Lights, which is near Asheville. One of your earliest podcast episodes, it might have been the first one, actually, I'm trying to remember, but you talked about this line. If you go east from Brown Mountain, where these strange multicolored balls of light, you know, are seen sort of smashing into the mountainside and, and so forth, no explanation as to what they are. And you go east from there and you, and you took us on this amazing journey, like in a straight line east from there, and it connects to all of these other strange places. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Absolutely. Well, you know, Asheville is in the mountains in the western part of the state, and we have some of the world's most pure quartz crystal there, uh, which I think is interesting because we always hear about this relationship between electricity and electromagnetism and paranormal manifestations. And when you apply little stress to quartz, it produces all of this amazing electromagnetic energy. And uh, there may be a, a connection there. But, you know, Asheville, the mountains there are the, they're the oldest mountains in North America. And if you start drawing a line east of there, well, then you finally hit the area around Brown Mountain. And the Brown Mountain lights are these multicolored balls of light that have appeared floating on and around this ridge at night for hundreds of years. No one has ever explained what they are. And it's not just a matter of seeing the lights. There's also this entire sort of culture of bizarre phenomena that that goes with them. Uh, UFO sightings and abductions and, and creatures and time-space warps and men in black. And in fact, I just finished a two-part series uh, all about the, my story of the Brown Mountain Lights – uh, on my podcast, Strange Things. That's the latest one that was just posted was part two of that. And so that's almost like a miniature Bermuda Triangle. You continue drawing that line east. You finally hit this section around the middle of the state where we have what's called the Devil's Tramping Ground, which is this big, barren circle in the woods. And nobody can figure out why that nothing will grow there. And they claim that if you take a stone and put it in there or something similar, that the next day it will be removed. And so for hundreds of years, the old timers have said, this is where the devil walks around in a circle at night, mulling over all the things he's going to do to humankind and then kicking, you know, kicking things out of his way. You continue drawing that line. You finally reach the coast of North Carolina where so many ships have sunk. They call it the graveyard of the Atlantic. And then right off the coast there, you have the area around Roanoke where we had the lost colony where they all disappeared. And if you keep drawing that line east, you finally more or less hit the island of Bermuda, the top point of the so-called Bermuda Triangle. And I find these alignments and even these patterns 
fascinating because it reminds me of how when Benjamin Franklin used to travel back and forth between our country and Europe, there was a big mystery that, I mean, people were aware of it, but nobody really explored it that much. Why would it take you like a week or two longer to get back from Europe than it would to get to Europe, okay? Everybody knew that was the case, but nobody knew for sure why. So Benjamin Franklin used to drink this wine called Madeira, a Spanish wine. And when he would take these voyages from America to Europe, he would dip these wine bottles in the water once in a while off the side of the ship and just take the temperature of the water and plot it. And over time, he realized by looking at how he connected all these dots that there is this thing he called the Gulf Stream, which flows from our country toward Europe. And you can almost envision it being like a warm river that flows within the ocean. And and once you know where that is, well, you can follow that and you can save a lot of time. The funny thing is, even after he published this information – it was about four years before people acknowledged it. And all that time, they could have saved untold amounts <laughs> of money if they just paid attention to his work. Pardon the interruption. We're going to take a time out. I didn't know that it was Franklin that discovered the Gulf Stream. Fascinating. We always <laughs> learn so much when Joshua drops by, and he'll stay with us for the full two hours. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Joshua P. Warren, joshuapwarren.com. And the uh, the new podcast is Strange Things. You can go to strangethingsshow.com to subscribe. We were talking about Benjamin Franklin and uh, discovering the Gulf Stream and how that wasn't really understood or appreciated until years later. Was there anything you wanted to add to that before we move on? Yes. So, you know, Benjamin Franklin, he found that there were all these dots he could connect in order to discover a pattern which would represent something about the physical makeup of the Earth. And so when you have these other patterns that are known, like, for example, the Bermuda Triangle, it's reminded me of his experiment and how that when you start connecting these dots, it shows you something bigger about what's happening on our planet. And here, for example, in Nevada, where we have what's called the Nevada Triangle, this is an area between Las Vegas and Reno, Nevada, and Fresno, California. And within that triangle, an average of three airplanes vanish every month. Every month. And so we're talking about over the past 60 years, uh, over 2,000 planes have vanished here. That's more way more than in the Bermuda Triangle. My uh, I had You no might idea. even Yeah, exactly. You remember Steve Fawcett for example? Yes, I was just going to mention Fawcett. Yeah. 2007 beautiful day he goes out and flies this very routine route almost like a Sunday drive for him and then he boom he's just gone he just disappears and years later they found what they thought may have been some of his remains but nobody can explain what happened to him and he was the most experienced aviator in the world and so what's even odder is that you can kind of understand why that when a plane or a boat or something like that vanishes in the Bermuda Triangle how that, well, that thing's going to sink down so far below the water, well, we'll never find it. You can kind of, you, you can rationalize that. But here, you're talking about mainly 
barren mountains with I mean very little vegetation. Sure, there are lots of cliffs and rocks, but you have very good visibility compared to other parts of the world. And furthermore, you have some of the most sophisticated technology here around all these military bases, including Area 51 and, of course, the Nellis Air Force Base, in order to track these objects. And so... Why do so many things disappear here? And then you start digging deeper and you realize, hey, it's not just that. We've got monsters here. We've got all kinds of haunted places. We have the time warps, etc. And so that's why, you know, I, I've always thought places like Asheville and Puerto Rico and Las Vegas, they are part of a greater underlying system of energy. And if we can figure out what that pattern looks like, then we'll be able to even predict more easily where these paranormal phenomena will occur in the future. Right. And you talk a lot about energy. The idea is whenever we see a UFO or a ghost, there is this associative energy, electromagnetic or electrostatic charge, that's in the air. So this is one of the things you're trying to piece together is where does this energy come from that allows these things to manifest or to appear in our dimension or our reality? Yes. In fact, I believe that's one of the things that distinguishes me from a lot of the other paranormal researchers. I did not really, despite you know my, my interest in all the old ghost stories and stuff, I really did not pursue all of this just as a thrill seeker because i have always had a very sort of scientific engineering point of view on the world i had my own little laboratory you know when i was a kid in the basement and it's a wonder i didn't you know kill somebody or some something <laughs> at some time and for about 15 years you know i worked in a laboratory operated by charles a yost who was a nasa hall of fame engineer we worked on all kinds of very serious projects and so i understand the scientific method and what i always found most amazing was the idea that when people experience something paranormal, usually this thing, according to what they are able to perceive, just spontaneously appears, does something that requires an enormous amount of energy of some kind, and then it disappears. And I wondered, well, where did the power come for this? Where are the batteries? What's the power supply? And you can say that very easily if you're looking at something like a UFO. Well, how is this thing flying around? I mean, but then even when it comes to seeing something like a glowing apparition, well, why is it glowing? What's making that happen there? And, and I felt that from a, a very practical standpoint, if you can take some of these paranormal phenomena and back-engineer them, so to speak – you might be able to tap into much more powerful and readily accessible sources of energy that surround us every day than we realize. And this is similar to the idea of maybe tapping into a zero point or some kind of vacuum-based energy. But it's like either there's a power supply that's coming from somewhere that we haven't learned to tap or these beings are not truly appearing and disappearing they just look to us like they are because they are invisible most of the time. And you have to sort through these experiences encounter by encounter and case by case to try to say, okay, what's the point of all this? Why are we investigating these things other than just being curious? In my opinion, it's because if we figure out how this works, there's a practical benefit there. 
Right, right. You mentioned in one of your early podcasts, I think it actually was the first one, you have compasses all over the place. You always have compasses nearby, in your lab, maybe on your person, because when we're talking about these electromagnetic anomalies that seem to accompany paranormal activity, those compasses go haywire. And it happened, your very first podcast, right? You were recording and you looked down and your compass went kaflooey. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's one of the simplest things that you can do is get yourself a compass and wear it on a bracelet or just like I do spread compasses around your home or your office and a compass should always point north. So if it's not, something is affecting it. And so that is to say if you get around something that's big and metal, well, that might have an impact but it's still not going to make that thing tend to spin around. It'll just sort of deviate from north. If you look down and you see a compass and it's spinning, and this is something that's also reported happening around the time warp location here outside of Las Vegas, then there is some type of major disturbance that is occurring within your proximity. And what we find is that electromagnetism really is that one form of energy that glues everything together. You can transduce electromagnetic energy or change it, that is to say, into all other related forms that we can measure for different purposes. But the basic electromagnetic fabric that forms what we consider our known reality is something that is usually quite stable. And when something starts to disrupt it, it almost creates these currents within it. And it's when that instability kicks in that you see momentum, you see change, you see dynamic phenomena occurring. And so I think of it as being something like interdimensional weather. So, for example, we have atmospheric weather here on Earth, which is why, you know, you go to Tornado Alley and most days of the year, everything's perfectly fine. But then sometimes these perfect conditions come together and creates this beautiful, terrifying, organized pattern, which is a tornado that comes through and destroys everything. And it's just because all the conditions are right. And the same thing with the hurricane. So you, you have these times when the conditions form the atmospheric weather. We see the same thing with uh, cosmic weather. And so perhaps, for lack of a better term, there are places where we have what we call, you know, interdimensional or something like that, dimensional weather. And when things get shifted a little bit, it sends a ripple, it sends a shockwave, it's like a stone in a pond. And sometimes you don't want to be around when that happens. Maybe that's what happened to my great uncle Claude Calloway. When he was there <laughs> and he got caught in one of these ripples and he, he got put into another point in space-time or it killed him. You know, we don't. We are not sure about that. I do know that when I was in Puerto Rico, and I would hear all these stories about people who would disappear in the Bermuda Triangle. You know, it's, and it, it's funny because a lot of people think of the disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle, but it's more than that. It's not just the disappearances; it's how they disappear. I got to jump in here. We'll uh, yeah. we'll pick up on that point when we come back. Joshua P. Warren, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay tuned. Back with more in a moment. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. 
And we are back with Joshua P. Warren. Before we get back to our conversation, just a quick shout out to our Star Chamber patron, uh, Deep Paul. That's his handle, Deep Paul. No location, no last name, no address, but Deep Paul. I truly appreciate your support. And uh, if you'd like to become an official Patreon supporter, go to patreon.com slash strangeplanet, patreon.com slash strangeplanet. A number of donation tiers there available, but uh, whatever you feel like giving, again, greatly appreciated and uh, helps us continue this work that we do. So, Joshua, we were talking about the Bermuda Triangle, and we tend to focus on the ships uh, disappearing and the planes disappearing and, and so forth. You said but there's a lot more going on there than just disappearances. Yeah, well, you know, when we think of these disappearances, because they were popularized primarily in the 1970s in the book by Charles Berlitz, we often think of the airplanes going down, for example, the fighters just after World War II or various ships. But when you go to Puerto Rico and you spend time there visiting all of these old historic forts and various sites, you learn that there have been many occasions in which individuals have just vanished as they're standing near the water. And this is something that you don't really hear about too much. I'd never heard about this until I went down there. And I'll give you an example. There is an old fort that was built in the 1700s called San Cristobal. And they have a guard box there called La Garita del Diablo. And this is, which means the devil's guard box. And if you were put on the duty that nobody wanted to have, they would tell you to go out to that guard box and stay there all night. And many of the men did not make it. They decided to basically be court-martialed or whatever, then stay out there because they would go out and they would disappear and nobody would be around the next morning. Well, those few men who did make the right decision and turn around and get out of there said that they would be out there all by themselves in the middle of the night with the waves crashing. Now, again, we're going back to hundreds of years ago, so imagine this being in the 1800s. And all of a sudden, they would see this especially eerie, hair-raising kind of green glow that would begin to appear out over the sea. And then it would just slowly get closer and closer and closer, and it would start to look more like a glowing green fog coming toward them. And that is the point at which the smart ones turned around and got out of there. (laughs) Now, what's funny about that is in those days, those guys probably had virtually no knowledge about electrical phenomena other than seeing, you know, lightning or perhaps when you're out at sea. Sometimes under the right conditions, the guys who were sailors would talk about what they called St. Elmo's Fire, which is when you would look up and you'd look at the top mast of a ship and they would build up an electrostatic charge and they would start to glow. But when you're in the laboratory and you start messing around with creating these strong electrostatic charges, uh, they will often appear exactly as these old guys were describing in the 1800s. You create these kind of greenish Sometimes, depending on the atmospheric makeup, they can even be purplish or pinkish kind of of, of illuminations uh, that certainly, to the inexperienced eye, would look, at very least, ghostly. And so I've always thought that there was some kind of a charge, an electrostatic charge that was building up over the ocean at that time, sort of moving across that land from the water onto 
the soil of Puerto Rico, and that if you got caught in that, this would have been what's responsible for that shifting from one dimension to another. So it's interesting to think about that on a personal level and to not just think about being in an airplane that disappears, but you know, look at the descriptions that people were having and to re-examine their descriptions through modern eyes. Right, right. Well, if anyone is going to crack that mystery, it's going to be you because no one is even thinking along these lines other than, than you, Joshua, as far as I can tell. I want to talk a little bit now because the mighty Aphrodite is listening. And uh, again, she's, this is a command performance. She wants to find out about sigils. So let's give people a little crash course on what these sigils are. And if they, can, if they want to see an example, they can go to joshuapwarren.com. And these are created through cymatics, correct? Yeah, these particular ones are. And of course, you know, a sigil is basically just a magical symbol. And they date back thousands of years. They have been used in you know, many different traditions. And I'll give you sort of my interpretation for why that they work as an antenna for channeling a certain type of manifestation, a certain type of outcome. A sigil is basically the condensation of an energy form. And what I mean by that is if you take something like a thin piece of metal and you sprinkle sand on top of it and then you play a tone underneath that sheet of metal, then the sand will snap into all of these beautiful, highly organized patterns. And as you change the tone being played, well, then the patterns shift and you can see very obviously that it is the sound, it is that vibration which is creating a physical effect and that you can tell the type of effect you're creating by looking at the pattern that's being created. Right. That's cymatics. That's cymatics. That's, that's cymatics. This is a short segment, uh, Joshua, so pr- uh, forgive the uh, intrusion <laughs> here. We're going to come back and then we'll have clear sailing till the top of the hour. And then, of course, there's hour two, but we'll continue to talk about sigils and we'll talk about secret ways to manifest. We'll talk about shape-shifting immortals. Uh, maybe we'll even get into the Mandela effect. So much to discuss with the groundbreaking paranormal researcher. No one anywhere like him, Joshua P. Warren, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T. Joshua P. Warren is here. Uh, well, relatively new podcast. Came out in the uh, the fall of 2020. You really want to subscribe to this. It's just fantastic. And uh, that's Strange Things. You can subscribe at strangethingsshow.com. It's part of the Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network strangethingsshow.com. So we're talking about sigils, and uh, so these are created through cymatics. You have a vibration, a tone, acting upon you know, fine particles, maybe uh, spread over a, um, uh, some sort of a, uh, a surface, and you get these shapes, these forms. In fact, I was speaking with this fellow, and he said in the king's chamber, in, this, in the uh, sarcophagus, they did that, and they played this tone, and they got an, uh, an Egyptian hieroglyphic. Hmm. And when they did that in a cathedral 
in Wales or Ireland, they got, you know, those, uh, those Celtic, I think they call them Celtic knots. They're like, I don't know, it's like a Gaelic letter or what it, whatever it is, but they got that there. When they went to Israel and they did it in a, in a temple, they got Hebrew letters. So it seems to these researchers that that's how we got our alphabets. Well, that certainly makes sense. Uh, in fact, there's a whole field called archaeoacoustics where they go back and try to examine some of these ancient sites by by playing tones and by seeing sort of you know how these are forming a uh, a signature that would even create a mental state, for example. And so, when we look at cymatics. And we just say, okay, this is basically how cymatics works. It's, it's, it's really just an example of how vibration uh, holds the whole universe together. Mm. Um, and then we say, all right, well, what do we do with this little symbol that's created? Well, again, a sigil, this goes back to the Latin word sigillum, which means seal, more or less. So I started thinking, well, we, we see there's a relationship between the tone uh, well, let me put it this way, between the energy, which creates the tone, which creates the symbol. And this is very much uh, like a form of broadcasting because, to, and just to give everyone listening an analogy, when it comes to traditional broadcasting, uh, if you have two antennas that are trying to communicate with each other, so to speak, the design of the antenna makes a big difference. So these two antennas must be sort of synced up in a certain way for them to be able to send and receive a signal. If, they're, if you have the wrong type of antenna, then they're not going to be able to, to connect with each other. Right. And so what that means is if you have an antenna, that one antenna is capable of both transmitting and receiving and it just needs to be exposed to some type of energy. That's why that these passive RFID chips work, uh, like the kind you might encounter if you were to try to walk out of a store with an item of clothing. You know, often there's a little chip inside there that's passive. It doesn't have a battery hooked to it. It's just sitting there. But then when you go out through the doors, well, it hits it with an active field, and then it wakes up this little chip, so to speak, and the alarm goes off. So... What I decided was to, to see if there would be a way of taking cymatics to the next level, what I call parasymatics, meaning what I would do is I would create a tone and get a symbol, and then I would consider that to be sort of like my carrier tone, and, or, and, and then I would inject into that tone a certain type of goal or affirmation. And so that, and it could be something like, I am going to attract more money, or I am going to encounter a ghost, or I am going to be happy and healthy today, or, you know, it could be anything. And what I found was that when I would get a tone, and I decided to use water for this because the human body is primarily composed of water and empty space. So it makes sense that if we're dealing with something for humans, by humans, for humans, water is a good way to go. So I took all kinds of different water. I used some salt water from the Caribbean. I used tap water. I, I used tonic water. I tried all these different waters to see what I got the best result from. And then um, I, would, I would hit it with uh, these frequencies and then I would speak into it these affirmations, and it would change as I was speaking the affirmation. And at the same time, 
I would be shining uh, lasers on it, and I would be looking at it under both infrared and ultraviolet cameras. And then I would take all that imagery, pull the stills out of it, combine it together, and see what image appeared in the water when that affirmation was spoken. And then I would turn around, give that to my wife, Lauren, who is a wonderful artist, and ask her to sit down and do an illustration of that pattern that the water had given us. And so this would create a final black and white sigil, which to me is a wonderful combination of art and science. Right. And so right. then I put these things for free on my website, joshuapwarren.com, and I told people just go there and uh, just look at it. You know, you, you can put it on your cell phone. You can print it out and stick it on your wall, but look at it throughout your day. Whenever you get a chance, look at it for five seconds, ten seconds, and let me know what happens. And that's been several years ago, and let me tell you, Richard, not a day goes by when I I don't get some kind of message from somebody in this world telling me about some miraculous thing that has happened by using the sigil. I mean, I've gotten numerous people who have had one of the sigils tattooed on him or herself. Because oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so, um, and it's just like, I mean like major stuff. For example, just uh, even a friend of mine recently told me, he said, you know, he was working a dead-end job he didn't like, and then he heard about my sigil stuff, and he said, I started using that sigil within a month. This unbelievable job. He, he always wanted to, to travel the world, and he's a single guy, doesn't have any kids, so he's got a lot of freedom. And he got this amazing offer to become an international flight attendant. And so he says, I get to fly all over the world now. I get all this extra downtime. I have tons of money. And he's just so happy. He's like beaming. And he showed me his phone. He was like, look, this is what I've had on my phone every day. you know. And, and it's the sigil. And so I believe that when you are around these sigils, they're functioning like some kind of an antenna. And that I was able to, to take a frequency for something good, put it into that pattern, and when you're around that pattern, then that is being transmitted to you, and due to sympathetic resonance, which is the tendency of two things to sort of synchronize, which again is how broadcasting works, uh, it it will make these miraculous things happen for you, and uh, you know, it, even even if we describe this as some kind of a placebo effect, hey, if it works, it works fine. Right. Right. This is what I love about you, Joshua, this scientific underpinning to, to the paranormal. Uh, it gives us so much credibility. Uh, so the mighty Aphrodite, she carries the sigil that I printed uh, for her, oh, probably, what, three, four years ago. And she'll take it to the convenience store when she's you know picking her lottery numbers and so forth. And uh, she gets a lot of free tickets. And occasionally she'll win $10 here, $15 there. Um, so – but here's the thing that you said that kind of struck me, and that is you have to look at it. You, you don't just pull it out of your wallet on, you know, lotto day. You got to look at it more consistently, right? Yeah, the more the better. It it should be something that you, you want to try to look at it at least once a day. But here's a little trick um, that I tell people, and, and a lot of people, I don't care what method that you might be using to incorporate an affirmation into your life. Uh, if you have a symbol or a phrase or, or something like that that you believe 
helps influence your day and make it better. And you take that and you post it somewhere where you're going to see it every day, like your bathroom mirror or your refrigerator or your steering wheel or something like that. That's all great in the beginning. The problem is, though, after a week or two, you're going to get used to seeing it and you just won't notice it so much anymore. So the trick is take whatever you use as a calendar. If you have a calendar on your phone I'm old-fashioned. i got a big old wall calendar that I write all my stuff on. Um, and go ahead for the next year even, and every two weeks make a note on a certain date, change position of affirmation or something to that effect, so that at least every couple weeks you're moving it to a new place. And by doing that, it's going to keep it fresh on your mind and keep it activated so that it doesn't just fade into the background like every other piece of clutter in your life. Ah, okay. That's that's great information. All right. We'll, um, we're going to roll into the uh, top of the hour here. Come back. Joshua is staying with us. We'll open up the phone lines. We'll take questions, comments from our YouTube live chat. And uh, we'll talk about, continue to talk about secret ways to manifest. Uh, we'll also talk about shape-shifting immortals. I can't wait for that one. Joshua P. Warren, joshuapwarren.com, the podcast Strange Things. Subscribe at strangethingsshow.com. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away.